Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. B-Y-R-O-N-S-I-G-C-H-O-L-O-P-E-Z. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview, is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, and the Chicago Reader. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Thursday, January 21st, 2021. Those voices you heard at the outset, Mark Maxwell doing his uh, special, a great special about uh, Michael Madigan, Speaker Madigan leaving office. Byron Sixer Lopez, Alderman of the uh, 25th Ward. <laughs> uh, we uh, sp- teach people how to spell his name as he spoke up on behalf of the teachers. These are some of the issues that we've been talking about all week, all week long. If you can uh, listen to uh, the live show, uh, you would be enjoying our take on them. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. No, 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 no. Today, our conversation will be, well, I'll just read the headline in today's New York Times. Democracy has prevailed. Biden pledges to seek unity. That's the headline in the New York Times the day after. And we may lead off with a little discussion of that before we get to the real, the real deal. Uh, And uh, so without further ado, I'll ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Sergio Mims. Uh, Longtime favorite guest of Ben Jarowski and Dennis as well, and um, co-founder and the uh, co-programmer of the Black Harvest Film Festival, among many other things I do, by the way. Yes. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I just watched the film this morning that I very much want to get for Black Harvest this year. It's a year-long thing. You just you got to keep moving all the time. Can you talk about that movie or that film, or do you want to keep it secret? I gotta keep a secret right okay. now. It's it's. I've already been in talk with some people, um, but uh, all I can tell you is that if it works out and we get it, it's gonna be a big get. Wow! So there you go. All right, uh, Black Harvest Film Festival, as everybody knows, is a film festival that takes place in the month of August at the Gene Siskel Theater when we're not in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, this year is a That's virtual. Right. And I'm hoping that uh, we will be out of this pandemic, fingers crossed, for many reasons. I put this in my reader story. One of the things I look forward to uh, when the pandemic passes and uh, is going to see, I love this moment. I talk about it all the time. I know it's all about new movies, Sergio, that, uh, that you're unveiling for people to see. But I love it when you bring back the oldies, you get the director, you get the star, you get on there after the show, you get all the people who are like in their 40s or their 50s weeping and memories of movies that they just loved uh-huh. back in the 90s and the 80s, whatever. Uh, and then you have the interview. So that's probably pound for pound. Uh, my favorite part well, of the Black Harvest Film Festival. Yeah, we couldn't do it this year. Um, fingers crossed we'll be able to do it again this year. Uh, I mean, I should, well, uh, let me rephrase that. We couldn't do it last year. Yes. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll be able to do it again this year. I already have a film in mind, which will be an anniversary of a, of a particular important movie. Uh, 
we'll see what happens. Okay, we'll see what happens. But I have one film in mind already for that. Uh, all right, uh, as always, will not reveal it. Yes, go ahead. Can't, can't reveal right now because you know right now it's so early. I don't want to make a promise about something and it turns out it never happens. It happens all the time. Mm-hmm. And and by the way, as long as we're talking about the Cisco Film Center, I I don't know if you know or you don't know that Barbara Sheeris, who was the uh, um, the um, festival programmer and has been for the last forty five years mm-hmm. at the Cisco Film Center, retired last year at the end of the year, and uh, we have a uh, a new uh, executive uh, programmer uh, Rebecca Fonz, who um, is the new person. She has a lot of great ideas. She has a lot of great ideas about w- where to take the F- Cisco Film Center and where to take Black Harvest. Uh, and um, we've already had a few brief discussions about that, which we plan to talk about more in detail by the end of the month. So, you know, things are looking up. Just keep our fingers crossed and that uh, we'll be back in the theater again uh, in August, as always. As you know, I got my fingers crossed. I really miss going to movies uh, in movie theaters, real movie theaters, not just seeing the Black Harvest Film Festival, but just going to the movies. And uh, we will be discussing uh, in detail two movies. I've been extolling the virtues on my regular show and promoting uh, Sergio's appearance uh, one night in Miami. Sergio has been talking about this movie to me, I think, since December. I finally got to see it. Uh, I'm with him 100% on what a great flick it is. And the other one, Sylvie's Love, which I've been taking a lot of heat for, <laughs> from some guests who are a little think I'm a little too sentimental for loving it as much as I do. Uh, we'll get into uh, to Sylvie's Love as well. <clears throat> but before we do that, uh, I just got to hear your thoughts uh, on what went down yesterday uh, in our country, the inauguration. Uh, Donnie Trump is gone. Joe Biden is our president. Kamala Harris is our vice president. Uh, it was a spectacle that went all day, and not just the swearing in, the inauguration, uh, but uh, the first press conference and then the inauguration celebration. This was like an all day event. Your general thoughts, Sergio Mims? Well, like everyone, I watch practically all of the, I was glued in front of my TV yesterday, watched almost all of everything that happened. And I think for, I think I speak for a lot of people in that um, (laughs) we thought this day would never come. (laughs) And also the fact that I think everybody, well, let me just say, at least 80 million people, I can't speak for the rest, feel that, um, uh, it's a breath of fresh air. You know, there's some optimism that things will finally, um, things will finally happen. Uh, Biden and Harris have a huge job in, uh, ahead of them due to the total mismanagement of the Trump administration. Somebody said to me yesterday, very accurate, that having Trump as president for the last four years is like someone living with a drug addict, hmm. which is true, right? Living with a drug addict is insane, and you don't know what they're going to do on any particular day. Every day is some new problem, some new worry that threatens to bring down the whole house. So, um, just the fact that 
Biden is normal and that he's boring, <laughs> I think it's a great thing, you know? Let Donald Trump stew in his, um, you know, where, what is that place called in Florida? I can't remember now. Mar-a-Lago. Mar-a-Lago. By the way, he, he, I just saw that he finally got a lawyer who's going to represent him for the upcoming impeachment in the Senate, Butch Bowers. Butch Okay, <laughs> I don't know Butch Powers. Yeah, he's uh, some uh, <laughs> South Carolina lawyer with uh, connections with the Republican Party. I, I think see. at one time he was head of the Republican Party in South Carolina, but his name was Butch Bowers. Okay. Butch. Okay. Uh, I, that, that's Maybe he's a real lawyer as opposed uh, to the charlatans that have been surrounding Donald Trump uh, for the last few weeks as he's uh, professed his. Well, the fact that he's repping, he's repping uh, Trump means he can't be that good. Well, unless he's just trying to uh, build, you know, a brand name or uh, get attention for himself. I mean, it's a high profile case. You can't beat the publicity. Uh, my word of warning to Butch Bowers, who I've never heard of, much less met. Uh, Donald Trump is notorious for stiffing his lawyers. Just putting that out there. So you're either going to work for nothing or get your money up front. That's just Which my word. Which reminds me. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. I guess you, I'm sure you talked about this, that this report came out maybe two, three weeks ago that Trump decided not to pay Giuliani anymore. <laughs> first of all, yeah. was, he, was yeah. he ever getting the money in the first place? I doubt it. But here's some um, really strange things about that. They said that Giuliani was getting $20,000 a day. Yeah, that's what he was asking for. Well, yeah, okay. yeah, but here's the other problem. Yeah, Giuliani. Yeah. Here's the other problem. Giuliani always used to claim that he was working for free. Now nobody believes yes. that, yes. but he was working for free because of his friendship with Trump. The real reason why he was claiming that was because his um, his now third ex-wife. He he didn't want her to know that he was making any money, so she could claim it. Right, because he's been going through this painful, long, extended divorce oh, with his now God. third ex-wife. Now, as out in the open, it was getting paid. Guess who's going to be coming after it? The third ex-wife. You better believe it. <laughs> oh my God, what a crow! Right. Uh, and I have this thought I want to share with you before we get to the movies. And we, we, we'll get to the movies, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, by the way, uh, bye-bye, Mike Madigan. Bye-bye. Okay, we did Mike Madigan, yes. Michael Joseph Madigan is left. Chris Welch is now the speaker. We talk about that in the show all the time. But that's not what I want to ask you. <laughs> I want to ask you this. I just had this conversation with Ken Davis uh, on the live show, so it's in my mind. We both watched the inauguration party last night. It was pure propaganda. I think you'll agree. It was pure propaganda. But because it was propaganda on behalf of the team that won, that I wanted to win, I enjoyed it. I allowed my defenses to fall, Sergio, and I just luxuriated in utter propaganda on behalf of the Democratic Party and its candidates. Yes, I confess and I admit that. Um, I don't know if you felt the same way, but that's how I felt. All right. They had a whole group of celebrities, very talented people um, who sang uh, Anth Clements, John Legend, um, Tim McGraw, Justin Timberlake. I'm just rattling these off of the top of my head. The John Legend song was just unbelievable, by the way, I might add. And it occurred to me, Kenny Davis and I were talking about this, Sergio, that perhaps the greatest contribution that actors, celebrities, singers, 
playwrights, whatever. It, it, just the uh, A-list of celebrities in this country did over the last four years was not lend their name and their reputations to Donald Trump in any way. Uh, I can't think of one significant performer, actor, singer, dancer, stage star of any kind, director, anyone. I can't think of one, a significant one, Sergio, uh, who allowed his or her name uh, to be used by Donald Trump. Almost all of them resisted like hell when Donald Trump would use their songs in his commercials. Somehow or other, they got the Village People song. I don't know how that happened. Um, can you, do you have an explanation for why this, the, the A-list of celebrities were so passionately against Donald Trump? Uh, because they're smart. <laughs> because, <laughs> well, who wants to be associated with Donald Trump? I mean, look at the celebrities who actually did hang around Donald Trump. Scott Bayo, you know, uh, John Voight, <laughs> Christy Swanson, for those who don't know who Christy Swanson is, um, an actress, maybe her most claimed role wasn't that Wes Craven horror film Deadly Friend where she actually decapitates somebody with a basketball <laughs> um, as a matter of fact Christy Swanson was in some John Hughes movie in two weeks ago there, there is some I think this is silly but I don't know but um, Donald Trump makes a cameo appearance in Home Alone 2 yes And there's some people claim that that scene should be cut, which I think is ridiculous. Just keep him in the picture. It doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, it's even funnier now. Okay? But now Christy Swanson said, well, if you're going to cut him out, then cut him out. uh, Then cut me out of all those John Hughes movies. To which most people said, I don't even remember you in those John Hughes movies. But don't cut a deadly friend, because then you're going to lose that scene where she really rips off a woman's head with a basketball. Yeah. So you're going to miss that scene. Um, yeah, I mean, nobody wanted to be associated with Donald Trump. I mean, let's face it. When he was down, when he was, when his last two weeks, when he was down at the dump and everybody left him, who he was left with? My pillow guy. Yeah, the my pillow That's guy. It. You know, my pillow guy was hanging around. That's how low he had sunk. Right? Yeah, no, I- um, and, you know, and, and also, I, I guess you, I don't know if you read this, but Trump was furious that the fact that all these celebrities wanted to perform at Biden's, um, you know, inaugural, inaugural ball. Yeah. Right. I mean, all he got four years ago was some group called uh, Three Doors Down, whoever they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know, that, so, no, that's my point. Uh, and I tip my hat to them, uh, you know, uh, because. He, he he was smothered. It, you're right. He, it, it, that rejection he felt for four years. Uh, and uh, and then, so then there's the celebration for Biden as exact uh, contrast to it. Uh, to and, Donald and Trump. Also, by the way, I, I, I don't know if you have heard this is happening, but one thing I would like Biden to do mm-hmm. is with Pelosi is trying to pass some sort of bill to help support artistic ventures, ventures in this country during this situation. Movie theaters, uh, concert halls, museums, um, 
uh, drama groups, dance groups, something that will still help them tie it over until we're finally out of this mess. Absolutely. Because I don't want to see movie theaters go away. I don't want to see concert halls go away. I don't want to see dance theaters or, I mean, dance companies or, you know, theater companies, museums. You know, I, I can't remember. What was the last time I was in a, you know, saw a concert? Last time I was in a museum. I mean, something that was just second nature to me that I didn't even think twice about, but except when you don't have it, yeah. and then you realize how important they are in your life. So I hope there's something in plan to do something like that. I know they're doing it in Germany and some other uh, European countries. I hope they consider doing something like that here. Yeah, me too. Uh, well put. And uh, all right, let's get to the movies. Uh, and we'll start with the one movie that you have been uh, singing its praise for months. You Somehow or other, you saw it way before uh, anybody else saw it. Uh, and yeah, I found- the perks of being in the media. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, And uh, so you saw it one night in Miami. Regina King shows that she's a great director. I finally got to see it Friday. Uh, It's hard for me to it's hard for me to describe the impact it had on me. But why don't you start off at the top by saying why, in your humble opinion, it's such an important movie? Well, first of all, this was a film that's a tall order to begin with, because it deals with a true incident which happened in 1964, in early 1964, where four prominent black men, who all four of them were on the cusp of moving beyond where they were and almost greatness. You had Muhammad Ali, uh, Sam Cooke, Malcolm X, and Jim Brown. And all all four of these guys um, happened to be in Miami when Muhammad Ali had this heavyweight uh, bout against Sonny Liston. And they all got together. Now, what, what they actually talked about, we don't know. But this movie proposes that let's get these guys together and what would these guys talk about? And basically, it's about four black men in America during a very pivotal time in American history. Remember, this movie takes from us only about two months after Kennedy was assassinated. And the civil rights movement was still very much in full swing in the mm-hmm. South. Um, I should say in the country. So um, these four guys who realize that because of who they are and where they're at in their particular point in life, that they have a responsibility, they have a uh, a burden on them, but at the same time, is at the same time, it's a movie about four friends, and it's very funny, really funny. Um, Eldridge Hodge, who plays Jim Brown, who is perfect you know, has a line in the film, which is the funniest line in the movie. And it's a line that when you, when you hear it, you go like, yeah, that's something Jim Brown definitely would say. <laughs> and then you have Malcolm X who had just left the nation of Islam. And you know, the trouble that caused, uh, and then you have, uh, Muhammad Ali who had just, uh, who was just about to announce that he was going to join the nation of Islam. And that was a huge controversy as well. And then you have Sam Cooke, who was really at the top of his um, popularity with hit songs, but he was not happy with the business and wanted to make some real moves that would 
not only change his, the, the trajectory of his life, but potentially could really change the recording, the music industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't need to say it, but two of those men didn't make it until 19, didn't make it past 1965. Mm-hmm. You know, Malcolm X was assassinated the following year and Sam Cooke died in 1964, later that year. Yeah. He was killed. Um, still under still really mysterious circumstances. There's been all kinds of theories about exactly what happened. It's still not exactly clear. But well, I, um, yeah. he was in a motel room. They don't really go into this. We should probably hold right, off right. on this one. I could talk about the Sam Cook thing forever, but yeah, go ahead. You're on a roll. Keep yeah, going. yeah. He, he, he was in a motel room, but you know, there's, there's even a, a really great documentary about it, which um, basically says that he was set up to be murdered. That's really Absolutely. Well, I don't know if he was set up to be murdered. I saw that documentary and we're now a tangent here. Sam Cook, the legendary Sam Cook, the great Sam Cook, uh, grad from Chicago to Sable High School, one of the great uh, singer songwriters of the 50s and early 60s, huge superstar. And uh, he was shot to death in December of 1964 at a motel in Los Angeles. I think he was set up Sergio by uh, the woman and the hotel I, motel owner. I always believe that that uh, it was a robbery attempt, you know. And uh, Sam Cook was set up. I, that's my personal belief, but it's just a personal belief about something that went down. How many years ago is that? Oh, almost fifty years ago. So no, more than that now. More than that. Good God! Yeah. Wow. Oh my God! Wow! Damn, time has flown. Uh, anyway. But uh, continue. Uh, by the way, the great line from Jim Brown, did it have to do with white women? Well, it has to do with women. Okay. All right. Uh, um, I thought it was the white woman line. He talks about why he thought they were all going to get together. Okay. Oh, right, right, right. That great line. Okay, okay. Right. Um, all right. So, yeah, go ahead. But, but, um, but it's just funny as well. It's really I mean, it's so beautifully acted. Um, I mean, um, two of the actors were totally unknown to me and two I had seen before. Leslie Odom Jr., who plays Sam Cooke, and Aldous Hodge, who plays Jim Brown. The other two actors I'd never seen before. Eli Gorey, who plays Muhammad Ali, is terrific, and he's Canadian. Yeah. And then you have the actor, let me get his name right again. Um, oh, gosh, what is his name? Kingsley Benadir. Who is British? And um, the ironic thing, you're gonna love this. I didn't know this, was that he played Barack Obama in a Showtime series about Comey. I did not know that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't know that. He plays Malcolm. He played both Malcolm X and Barack, Barack. Obama. Wow. Okay. Yeah, the light skinned guys. And, and, and also the other thing, he has he has a huge burden on him because, of course. Uh, everybody's going to be comparing him to Denzel Washington, yeah, yeah, and, and Malcolm X in Spike Lee's movie. But he's also really quite good. And um, it's—I mean—the movie, even though it was based on a stage play by uh, what's the, the uh, writer's name again? Kemp, Kemp, Powers. Um, Kemp Powers. Mm-hmm. Right. Even though uh, it's based on a stage play, it doesn't feel stagey at all. You know, it's it's like a movie. It's wonderfully cinematic. Regina King, who's the actress, who's been around forever. You know, I remember when she was a, a, a teenage 
a teenager on what's that show called 227. Mm-hmm. And she's been in a ton of movies. She won the Oscar like two years ago for Best Supporting Actress in uh, If Beale Street, Street Could Talk. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people don't know she's been directing episodic television for a few years now. So um, it's it's not like this is her first directing gig. It's her first feature film. But she pretty much has had had a lot of experience and dealing with actors it's i mean it's really really well done and it's um and i said it's it's when you think about it it's what's the last time you saw a movie about four black men got who simply get together to talk about their lives what they're hoping for the future um what they think their responsibilities are because of their position. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, four guys, four brothers just hanging around, having fun. Well, you can argue that Defy Bloods crosses into the same territory, but your point's very well taken. Here you have four, four superstars. And, yeah, at the time, that's what, that's what's different. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah four I, superstars put in a room, and, that, and yet the way they interact, it could be just four quote unquote ordinary human beings. You know what I'm right. saying? The way they, uh, they, they, they argue, they make up, they fight, they make up, uh, they go at, they go after where they're, they know the sore spot is, you know, where they can stick that needle in there, Sergio, and, uh, make some good points, make the other guys squirm a little bit. They know, they know how to play. There's that one, uh, line with Jim Brown, the, uh, the character, Jim Brown, the great football player. And it says to Malcolm X, it's always you light-skinned guys who are so outspoken. Remember that 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 yeah. part where he starts, uh, what are you guys trying to prove? And like Jim Brown doesn't have to prove anything to anybody, Sergio, because he's Jim Brown, you know? Right. Uh, and it, you know, it's just like blows my mind because like you view Malcolm X is this um he's on a pedestal, and you can't imagine anybody ever like talking trash to Malcolm. X or saying Malcolm X, you're wrong. But in this movie, he gets in an argument with Sam Cooke. Jim Brown kind of like, you know, they have that exchange. And uh, ultimately, well, I don't want to give anything away, although historically everybody knows if you know anything about Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, he doesn't go uh, with Malcolm X. He goes with Elijah Muhammad. So, yeah, um, yeah no, it's, uh, were you surprised at how effective Regina King was as a director? Uh, the boxing scenes. There's just some great boxing scenes. I love boxing movies. Those are great scenes. She's she's been directing for a while on episodic television, um, doing a lot of dramas. Did you know? And I there were a couple of shows I can't remember called where that would require her to do some action sequences. So I mean, like I said, she has some real ex- directing experience under her belt before she took on this project. And this is something she truly believed in. Uh, something that she developed for a long time. I remember hearing about she wanted to do this project. So uh, she was very close to material and something that was she wanted to do. I am dying to see what she's going to do next. Yeah. I'm really I, I, dying to see what she's going to tackle next. There's a great picture of her. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, directing the, the character who plays... Uh, Muhammad Ali, although at the time he was Cassius Clay, whatever, it doesn't, it's just a historical fact. And I don't know if you've seen this picture, but uh, Muhammad Ali is in the ring, 
in trunks. So there's the boxing sequence that he's looking down, getting his directions from the director. And there she is with the, uh, the quintessential baseball hat that all directors have to wear. And she's uh-huh. got the belt with all the uh, equipment on it around her waist. I'm like, oh, yeah. That's not a uh, you know world class actress. That's a working director. Uh, you know, total charge. To figure out when that became to look for directors. Gee, I don't know. When did that become the the? Because I remember, if you look at old pictures of directors back in the like thirties and forties, even the fifties, they were in suits. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they wore suits, right? They were like like you were, they were going to a corporate job. Yeah. Then over the years, it became more and it became a little looser. And now, right, it's the baseball cap and the thing. And I, I want to go. I wish directors go back to wearing suits. <laughs> oh, come on, that's not happening anytime soon. You no, can... there's, there's one director who does. Okay, who's that? Uh, Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan wears a suit while directing a movie? I did not know that. Oh, yeah. I've seen pictures of him. He's wearing a suit. Uh, He's, you know. Uh, well, um, uh, that, good for him. Uh, anyway, I urge everybody to see One Night in Miami uh, because it works on so many different levels. Did you have a, before we leave it, uh, Sergio, did, did one of the uh, characters uh, grab you the most in particular, any of them, or did you share love for them all? Um, you mean in terms of acting, in terms of the characterization? The characterization. I would say Jim Brown. Elders has his Jim Brown. You know, I, I was I would say him. You know, um, because you know people have this image of well. <laughs> Sorry, folks. There are uh, you know several you know images of Jim Brown, one that Monroe Anderson always likes to get me on about, you know, Jim Brown's tendency to uh, get into um, problematic scrapes with women. You know, I don't know. <laughs> but um, it's actually not very funny. Jim Brown has a horrific rep, uh, reputation beating up women. I mean, uh, it's, it's actually Spike Lee dealt with that. I don't know if you ever saw Spike Lee's documentary. I think oh, yeah, sure I did. All American oh, Heroes. Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, Jim Brown is a problematic character on many fronts. Uh, I actually kind of want to do a deep dive on Jim Brown and bring somebody on to talk about it because he very close to allowed himself. Yeah, we talked about celebrities who uh, allowed themselves to be used by Donald Trump. Jim Brown and Kanye West. Sergio, Jim Brown was in the White House with Kanye West. I know, I know, I know, I know. In one of the most bizarre moments of the Trump administration. And there's many candidates for that honor of the most bizarre moment. You remember that one where Kanye just starts going off on... uh, what was it? Jesus and Trump and why he is wearing the MAGA hat and I know, I know. <laughs> so uh, you know, Kanye of... himself has said that you know when he goes off his meds, I'm not joking. He has said that you know he has mental issues he's dealing with. He has to take medication. When he goes off his meds, uh, weird things happen. Yeah. Um, so I can't explain it. Of course, you know that he and uh, the missus are finally getting a divorce. People wonder, Jesus Christ, <laughs> you know, finally now after all this time. Um, 
Jim Brown, I don't know. Yeah. Guy's in his 80s, what can I say? Maybe he's, you know, losing it. I don't know what happened with Jim Brown. I don't know. Talk about twisting, talk about twisting turns. Yeah. You know. Twist and turf that ended up with uh, Trump and Trump Tower. All right. Sylvie's Love, you were uh, professing uh, your admiration for this movie long before it became fashionable. I love this movie. It's a tearjerker. Uh, it's on uh, Netflix, I want to say. No, Amazon. Amazon, my bad. Amazon, thank you for the so, correction. So, so, is, so is One Night in Miami. So yes. One Night in Miami. They're both on Amazon Prime. Uh, talk a little bit about Sylvie's Love and why you like it so much. Well, this is a film. Actually, this is a movie I tried to get for Black Harvest this year. Um, I couldn't get it. Actually, it was shown at Chicago National Film Festival. Well, you you win some, you lose some. But um, it's a movie that premiered last year at the Sundance Film Festival. And when I heard about it, uh, I read the synopsis. I really tried very hard to get it. Uh, couldn't get it. But finally, when I got a chance to see it, I really liked it. One of those things that, boy, I wish, you know, sometimes you try to get a movie for, for Black Harvest. You don't get it. And then later when you see it, you go like, I dodged the bullet. But then sometimes you see a film and you go like, oh, I wish we had gotten that one. And this is one of them. It's it, the, the great thing about this movie is what it isn't. It's not fancy. It's not um it, it, it doesn't try to rewrite the genre or the game. It's a love story. It's a period love story between two people. And yes, it's predictable. And yes, you can kind of know, you can see where it's going. But it's so well made. And in a way, you haven't seen a film like this in a long time that it's almost new again. And I think the set design, this movie was actually shot on film, not not, not digitally. Um, the set design, the costumes, like I said, it's set like between the years 1957 to 1963. About these two people, uh, she's the daughter of a jazz musician. He's an up-and-coming jazz saxophonist. And he had this up-and-down relationship, you know, uh, romance, uh, which ends in a happy ending. Um, but it's really more than that. Because the movie also deals with strivers, as they're called. What do I mean by that? Well, the characters in this movie are very much black middle class people, and but black middle class people, right at the 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 beginning of the civil rights movement in the nineteen fifties. So what is happening is that you're you're getting you've seen this perspective of people who are striving to um, to advance black people. Okay, let me give an example, okay? All right. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who saw this picture and she loved it to death, right? Mm-hmm. And she's a little bit older than me, but she loved it to death. And when she saw this picture, she said, this movie is about my parents. Right. It's about like my parents' generation. It's about those people, people who are going, who were young, coming of age during this whole period in the late 40s to 1950s to the 60s, where they were striving to be the new way. You know, that's why 
for for example, there's a little touch in the film where Sylvie Smur say uh, what it was she does. She's a, she's an etiquette yes. uh, teacher. Uh, she, um, she teaches the proper the etiquette, etiquette to the the fine right. children, the the sort of the upscale children of Harlem. Right, right. That was a big deal back then. That was a big deal. Now, if you're a younger black person, you don't get that. But back then, yeah, being an etiquette teacher, that was a big deal because the idea was, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready to go into the mainstream? Are you ready to go into white society? Because increasingly the country is becoming integrated. So are you ready? Do you know what fork to use? Do you know how to sit? (laughs) Do you know how to properly enunciate? Because you're going to be going out into these spaces that that for centuries were 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 absolutely um, forbidden or totally inaccessible to you. So you had people who had to teach you. Know, are you ready? And to a younger person, they may sound silly. They may sound like it's what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, what's that phrase they use? Um, uh, respectability politics. But it was a big deal back then. And he really, Eugene Ash, who's the director, really captures that that whole tone well. Now, background about the director is that Eugene Ash is in his mid-50s. This is only his second movie. He was a singer. Probably maybe still is one. He actually recorded some albums for Sony records but uh, a couple years ago he decided to switch to filmmaking and got a degree in film uh he's made one other picture called homecoming which i haven't seen but this is second movie Mm -hmm. clearly he is someone who is the child of those people of that generation so you know he has some knowledge about what they were talking about and and what his parents or even his grandparents went through so i think it's a lovely picture um uh, it's uh, Tessa Thompson plays Sylvie, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the actor's name, but the actor in real life is the husband of Carrie Washington, mm-hmm. the actress, uh, who was a former football player. Yeah, he's and a now, big-time producer, too. He produced the movie. Yeah, he did, that's why. He's going to more acting and producing, yeah. uh, I'm sure with the encouragement of his wife. But... Um, I just think it's wonderful. I, I just think it's lovely. I know some people don't like it. I talked to a friend of mine yesterday who didn't care for it. But, you know, to each his own. I think for what it is, I think it's lovely. Look, it is a, it's a romance. That's what it, what it is. It's a love story flat out. But the look of the movie is absolutely beautiful. And uh, when you tell me that the director, Eugene Ash, this is only his second uh, feature, I could see he's like uh, Regina King. He, he's just a natural because... Mm-hmm. It's just, and this is a movie I really regret not seeing on the big screen. There's some rooftop scenes. Oh, yeah. You know, there's this great nighttime shots of New York. Uh, it really kind of reminded me in some ways of like West Side Story from what I saw way, way back in the day where young lovers in New York City at this roughly the same time are uh, sneaking out, 
you know, under the watch of their parents and having their illicit romances. Uh, and uh, it's also uh, an homage to jazz. If you're into jazz, uh, I can't recommend this movie enough, both for the soundtrack and it shows how jazz musicians at this point, uh, Sergio, in, in the early 60s, they're watching rock and roll and pop music just completely take over and they couldn't get a gig. You know, it's like the best they could do is be the studio musician uh, at Motown, you know, which is, I'm well, sure, a nice you, gig you to have. You get that because we yeah. Motown, <laughs> yeah. right? There's so, a scene where he finds out that uh, it's not exactly a musician job they're offering him. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I urge everybody uh, to check it out. Even if you if you don't like romance movies, well, maybe it's not your movie. And I've been taking a lot of heat from some some of the people I recommended. It's bad. It's so savvy. It's so corny. It's like how can you watch it? I don't know. Maybe it was an antidote to what was going on uh, with the Trump administration. So two thumbs way up for one night in Miami and Sylvie's love. We're going to close with this, Sergio. I told you I had a trick question for you. Uh-oh. Uh, Sergio Mims has seen pretty much every movie ever made. And if not, he's read about it. The guy knows more about movies than anyone I know. So just before I called you up to, uh, to talk about today's show, I happened to see this article that popped on my screen. The 50 greatest Westerns of all time. Now, I don't think you and I have ever talked Westerns. It's not one of my favorite genres. I got to tell you that right now. It's my favorite of all. It's yeah. my favorite of all. It's your absolute favorite. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. I didn't. Uh, so the three that this gentleman who wrote this article, he went through 50 Westerns. And by the way, I'd seen at least 25 of them. So when I say it's not my favorite genre, I realized I should have seen a lot of Westerns in my life. <laughs> Number three, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. Number uh-huh. two, Unforgiven. Uh-huh. And number one, John Ford's The Searchers. Do you yeah, agree right. with that? Three, two, one? No. <laughs> <laughs> what are you? What are your top three? Uh, searches is so so overrated. I, I'm sorry, sorry, sacrilege is overrated. Uh, Unforgiven is a bore. It's a bore. Yes. Sorry, folks. And then what's the third one? The third uh, once one? upon a time uh, in the West, Sergio. It's okay, it's good. But and I'll give you. Let me give you my top three. Okay. Um, number one. I would say it's the Wild Bunch. Sam Peck and Paul the Wild Peck Bunch. Applause, yeah. I think it's brilliant, right? Number two, I would say the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Essentially, the only which I think is better than um, uh, What's Upon a Time in the West and uh, a movie which really changed the Western. Really changed the Western. Um, and then number three, wow, number three. Well, I pick this number three. Um, hmm, what I pick is number three. Uh, um, okay, uh, number three, I would pick, and I don't know how many people know this picture. I would pick Anthony Mann's uh, The Naked Spur. I don't know that movie. Oh, really great. Really great. With uh, James Stewart and um, Robert Ryan. You know, terrific little, I mean, like, um, not tense, what's the word? Terps. 
Church to Little Western. It's only like mm-hmm. 90 minutes long. And uh, a perfect example of what you would call a psychological Western. Well, I uh, neither of these two movies I'm about to mention were on the list. Uh, uh, I don't know they're, that they're my favorites uh, of recent time. Uh, anyway, and I don't even know if they would be considered Westerns, but they follow all, they have all the attributes of a Western. And they're two um, Quentin Tarantino movies, uh, Django and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, if, if that's not a Western, then I don't know what it is, but it's just like that scene at the ranch in by the way, uh, if you really want to hear the deep dive, Sergio, uh, go back and check out our, we talked for over an hour about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, it's one of our most popular shows. Anyway, um, the scene at the ranch, at the Charles Manson Ranch, if that's not a Western, Sergio, I don't know what it is. It's a, you know what I mean? Where Brad Pitt is walking oh, yeah. through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I don't know why they didn't put Django in there. Doesn't that count as a Western? Well, Jenga is a Western. The only reason why I didn't quite consider it is because it's, 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 I, I, I was thinking about, I'm more thinking about pure Westerns. Yeah. Django is a movie that mixes so many genres together. Yes, it's a Western, but it's a exploitation film. It's a revenge movie. It's a lot of other, other things, right? Yeah. Um, it's a commentary on the Western. It's a commentary on slave movies. It's a commentary on a lot of things. Uh, but if you want a movie that is strictly into traditional definition of Western, that's why I picked those three. Yeah. All right, very good. A sneak question I threw at Sergio. I knew he would have three. Uh, I, knew he would, I knew he would not let me down. Uh, Sergio Min, uh, co-founder of the Black Harvest Film Festival. Uh, two thumbs up for Sylvie's Love and One Night in Miami. Thanks so much for coming on the show. We'll talk to you soon, all right? Okay, bye-bye. That's the great Sergio Mims. I'm Ben Drowski. Take care, everybody.